The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 11 to 22, and chapter 7, verses 11 to 18. It can be found on page 5 in the Black Bibles. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every short shall come in to you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Cindy and Cody. Um, Y'all, you should know Cody is one of the counselors for our counseling center that we have here at Christ the King. It's a huge gift to have him and his ministry and all the the ministry of each one of our counselors here at Christ the King. If you didn't know that we had that, that's a a resource and ministry of our church, not just for members of Christ the King, it's really for uh, our city and our community. And uh, it it is a, a great and powerful instrument that the Lord has used in many people's lives. So we're super 
super thankful for all our counselors here at Christ the King. Um, I introduced myself a little earlier, but my name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really great to, to be with all of y'all this morning. Um, if you're maybe a first-time visitor or kind of new to Christ the King, I want you to know a little bit about us. Uh, we believe here that we're a group of people who all need good news. Um, in, in part, it's because because of what Jesus says in um, Luke 5. In Luke 5, Jesus is um, with all of these bad people. He's with a bunch of people who need good news. He's with kind of the, the town drunks and the prostitutes and the sinners and tax collectors. That's who he's spending time with. And the religious people, the church-going folk, are bothered by that. And they say this, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what we believe here is that we're a room full of sinners. We're, we're a room full of sinners who are sick, who need the great physician. And so um, maybe if you walked in, this is the first like kind of religious thing that you've done in a while and you feel like, man, I need to be like, real put together and buttoned up. Even if people here look like we're buttoned up, we're a mess. Like we really believe that we need grace and that that's where our hope is. And so wherever you are and wherever you kind of find yourself today in um, your walk with God and what you're believing about the Bible to be true, uh, we want you to know that you're welcome here and we're excited that you would consider the scriptures with us. Um, I wanna get out on the front end of, we're, we're, gonna, we're obviously gonna look at the, the flood this morning uh, from our scripture reading. I want to get on the front end of that and maybe some of y'all are wondering like, is John going to do a deep dive on the historicity of the flood? Pun intended, right? Deep dive. Did I get that? All right. Anyway, um, you know, I am not going to spend a ton of time like going into like the science and tectonic geological plate shifting and all the, you know, proofs or non-proofs of how big the flood was and whether, was it regionalized or was it global? Um, because I actually don't think that's the question, all the questions that Genesis is trying to answer in Genesis 6 through 9 about the flood. Um, but also, because we, were, we were talking about this in our staff sermon prep this week. Um, Jack Collins is an Old Testament theologian um, who, who just notes, like, listen, if we can believe that God can do something so miraculous as raise a man from the dead, then we can also make sense of believing in all the miracles that God does in the Old Testament. So whether you believe that it was a regional flood or a global flood, I, I, think it was, I think it was a global flood, but that's like not a hill to die on. The hill to die on is, is the good news that, that this story is telling us about a holy and righteous God who actually still intends to make a way for sinners to be saved. And so that's what I want us to see. Um, we're gonna look at three things. One, the need for justice. Two, the gift of mercy. And then three, so what? So let me, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll dive into the flood. All right, let's pray. I'm done, I promise. Father, thanks so much for the good news of your word and thank you for giving it to us now. Please help us, uh, help us to understand more of who you are and more of our need for you as we consider this true story that you have given us in your word and that you've given to us because you love us. We love you and thank you for this time now and pray that you would bless all who hear um, your word preached now and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Um, so I'm gonna open with kind of a heavy illustration, but I, honestly, I, I kept thinking about this courtroom scene that I saw a couple years ago as I was preparing for this sermon. And, and many of you may maybe saw it. It was during um, the testimonies that were given uh, about the uh, U.S. gymnastics Olympic doctor, Larry Nasser. And um, during his trial, there were multiple days of, of witness testimony about the way that he had, and I'm, I'm going to speak in generalized terms for the subject matter, but he had um, harmed over 100 children and women who came to him for medical care. And during the testimony, uh, three survivors of Dr. Nasser's abuse uh, had, had just given their testimony. They were all three sisters, and the father of these three women, now women, uh, was standing next to them. And, and he looked at the judge, and, and his voice, if you've seen the clip, his voice is shaking when he speaks to the judge. And he says, does a distraught father have a chance to say something? And the judge um, agrees and allows him to speak. And the, and the father, and he is dead serious when he says this. He says, judge, I would ask you as part of the sentencing to give me five minutes in a locked room with this demon. Would you do that? And the judge says, no. And then he, he, he begins pleading. He's like, please, just give me one minute. Just give me one minute. And the judge says, you know I can't do that. And, and at that, he, he just can't take it anymore. And he leaps over the table that's in front of him and charges at Larry Nasser. And before he can get to him is, is tackled and handcuffed. And the whole, the whole room is, is weeping and distraught. And, you know, his, his behavior in that courtroom, and he was handcuffed, and, and, and you should know he, he, the, the judge dropped all, you know, any charges that um, would have been filed against him. But while his behavior was disruptive, I don't think anyone would struggle to understand why he was disruptive and why he was led to that kind of reaction and passion. And, and the reason that I kept thinking about this story is, in a sense, that is a picture of God's emotional state in Genesis 6. We, this is kind of part two from the sermon that I preached last week, so if you want to get a little bit more context, go back and listen to that. But uh, just a little cliff notes is that we see at the, at the end of, or at the beginning of Genesis 6, there's kind of been this long train uh, and, and, and really downward spiral of the way that sin has gotten worse and worse in the world. Eve sins, and then the, the next generation, Eve's son kills his brother. And then generations after that, we have Lamech, and he he's, becomes a polygamist, and he's bragging about uh, all of the people that he's killed. And then after that, at the beginning of Genesis 6, there's even, there's even more um, violation of women happening in Genesis 6. And it's at that point where in multiple times it says God sees this, that he sees what's happening. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God is not going to stand by and, and just let that happen because he is like a, 
He is like a passionate father who cares about his children, who cares about his creation that he's made. And, and listen, my, the metaphor that I was giving you about this, this dad in the courtroom, it, it, it falls apart when you start to pull on it, like, like most metaphors do, because God is not disorderly. And he is not quick to anger. God is a, he's a God of order. He is actually slow to anger. He reveals that all throughout the scriptures. But also the, the other place that, that that metaphor kind of falls through is God is not in the witness stand. He is the judge. He is presented all throughout the Bible as, as the judge who has the power and the passion to execute justice. And we see in Genesis 6 that his passion to execute justice comes from his heart of love towards his creation and his regard for those who bear his image. And so when he sees what's happening, particularly to the vulnerable in the world, he is moved. He is moved towards wrath and justice. In verse 12... Again, we see that God sees. God saw the earth. And the the last time that phrase, God saw the earth, is used is all the way back in Genesis 1. Uh, We were were in Genesis 1 a few months ago. If you remember, all the way back on the sixth day of creation, when it says God saw the earth, God's assessment on the last day of his creation, on day six, before he's about to rest, he saw the earth and it was very good. And now God looks at the earth and he looks at what his image bearers have done to it. These image bearers who he has given the earth to, to be stewards of it and to bring beauty and life and flourishing and service and self, self-giving into this world to bear his image because that is like, that's what God is like. But instead they have filled his world with Corruption. Do you see, hear that word repeated three times? Corruption, corruption, corruption. The earth has been corrupted. The earth is filled, verse 11 says, with, with violence. And God is going to do something about the barbaric way in which people are treating one another in Genesis 6. And if you're the cynic in the room at this point might think like, oh, hold up, preacher man. Because God's about to like kill everyone. And that sounds really barbaric. What I want you to see all throughout the Bible, when God executes justice, the way that he does that is he gives people what they want. He gives them over to their desires and he shows them what that's like for them to have what they want. So uh, remember I said that word corruption was repeated three times. It's the same word it's the same word that's used in Genesis 6, 13, when God says, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy. There's that word corrupt. I will corrupt them. I will destroy them. So here's, here's what the author of, of Genesis is showing us. Three times we've already seen that the earth has been corrupted or destroyed at the hands of people. And so now God is going to give them more of what they want. They've been corrupting and destroying this place and now they're going to see what that looks like fully and finally. 
Because what, the way that they've been corrupting or destroying the earth is by turning from God, becoming more and more godless, you could say. And God is going to show them what utter godlessness looks like. And it looks like Genesis 1 verse 2, when darkness was over the face of the deep and the earth was without form and it was void and it was chaotic. And it's into that darkness that God begins creating and speaking light and life and beauty. But what we see in the flood is God is giving them what they want and he's sending the earth all the way back to its pre-creational state of Genesis 1-2, of these chaotic waters. God is giving them what they want. It's what Paul talks about in, in Romans 1-24, that God's wrath looks like giving us over to our desires. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans 1. That's what God's wrath meted out upon us looks like. It, it reminded me of, um, I went through a twilight zone kick about 10 years ago. Y'all don't judge me, but I got really into the old, like the old black and white version of the twilight zone. Um, and there's an episode that was written in, I think it was 1960, um, that came on CBS. And the, the episode is called A Nice Place to Visit. And it features this, um, he's like, he's like a, a, a robber, like, like a I can't remember, he's like robbing a bank or something in the, beginning of the, in the beginning of the episode. In the first scene, this bank robber, his name is Rocky Valentine, which is like the most 1960s TV character movie or ever. Like, what a name, Rocky Valentine. So Rocky Valentine is robbing this bank. He's shot and he wakes up. And the next scene when he wakes up, there's this kind of chauffeur that he has sitting by his bed. Who's, and it's this guy named Pip. And Pip asks him what he wants. And Rocky Valentine begins asking for things. He begins asking for food. He begins asking for good drinks. He begins asking for women. He begins asking to be taken to the casino. He has to play the dice. He start, and ev- everything he wants, he's getting. He's, every time he rolls the dice, he wins. And he's having the time of his life. And then it flashes forward six months. And Rocky Valentine is the most miserable looking person ever. And he's in the casino and he's winning every single time. And his life is totally boring and totally miserable. And he turns to Pip and he says, if I got to stay here another day, I'm going to go nuts. I don't belong in heaven. See, I want to go to the other place. And Pip retorts, heaven, whatever gave you the idea that you were in heaven, Mr. Valentine? This is the other place. He begins laughing and then the narrator comes on and says, Rocky Valentine, a scared, angry little man who never got a break. Now he has everything he's ever wanted and he's going to live, he's going to have to live with that for eternity in the twilight zone. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's the picture. It's like you, you, you think that you know what you want. If you want godlessness, it, is a, it would be a terror for God to give it to you. If you want life without the source of all things that are good and right and beautiful and true, then to be removed, removed from him and from relationship with him is to be plummeted into chaos. And this is where... Um, we have to be careful to not just like be theoretical with this. 
it'd be easy to talk about this and to kind of stay theoretical and to talk about like all those big bad people out there, the Larry Nassers of the world, and God's gonna, God's gonna judge that. But what the scriptures are telling us, what Genesis 6, 5 says, is that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil all the time. That my heart and that your heart is opposed to God and that we are his enemies and that God's, it would, it would be just for God, it would be just for God to punish us. I, I, I didn't say this in the first service, but I just thought of this story. One of my seminary professors just told me, uh, he, he said that uh, whenever his kids would start to whine, I'm not saying you should do this, okay? But he said whenever his kids would start to whine and complain about things and say, that's not fair, they had this little liturgy that they would do. The kids would go, that's not fair. And then the, my professor would go, what is fair? And then the kids would have to say, hell is fair. <laughs> but I mean, like we laugh at that probably because if we didn't laugh, we would be terrified because it's true. The Bible is telling us that, that that is actually the truth. That, that we are born enemies of God. That we are born spiritually dead and against him. And, and Genesis is telling us that that is the state of mankind. And, and, and like, it is so easy for us in Houston, living in America, to kind of leave that in the theoretical and not really think about how there is a day, there's a day coming for us that was like the day for people in Genesis 6, like they had a, they had a flood day coming. We have a judgment day coming. When this will stop being theoretical and become the most real thing. And, and, it, and it's not theoretical about like all the bad people out there. Like it will get real about all of our yuck and sin and guilt. And we, we won't have enough Instagram filters to make it look pretty or enough money to throw at it to fix the problem or enough smiles and I'm doing greats to act like everything is okay. It is, this is real for us. This is who we are. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. But this is it. And the reason I'm harping on this is because grace isn't amazing until your sin is. Grace isn't amazing until your sin is. And we, friends, all, the gospel, it, it simply doesn't make sense if we think that we somehow earn our way into God's delight. You know what that will make you really quick? It'll, it, that is the recipe for becoming a hypocritical, judgmental, religious person. That, that's how you bake up a hypocritical, judgmental, religious person is believing that somehow we can earn our way in because then you have something to look down on people for. Well, maybe you're looking at this and be like, well, hold up. It seems like Noah's kind of like, Noah seems kind of religious and righteous. I mean, it kind of says, look, it says, it, 
does it say that about him in Genesis 6? It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now, we've got to look at that through the lens of all of Scripture. And one of the things we can do is go one verse before and see why was it that Noah was considered righteous and blameless. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you, I said this last week, but like if you walked out of, out of the sanctuary and you saw a $10 bill on the ground and you found it, you wouldn't pick it up and go, I earned this, right? Maybe you'd be like, hmm, I love my pastor. I should hook him up. Or you'd say, like, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't act like you've earned it. You found it. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't something that he had earned. And in fact, when we keep reading what the author of Genesis is telling us about this big story and like how people become righteous in God's sight, we see in Genesis 15 that it's by Abram's belief in God's mercy. Abraham believed, Genesis 15 tells us, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Because of Abram's belief, because of his faith, he is righteous in God's sight. He's blameless in God's sight. And so Noah, Noah here is considered to be righteous because he has found, he's found God's grace. God, and, and when it's describing all of mankind, it doesn't say every inclination of every man's thoughts was only of all, all the time except for Noah. Like Noah was a sinner. By the way, keep on reading Genesis and you'll find out that he's a pretty big sinner. I mean, he gets off the ark and makes a vineyard and gets wasted. That's where Noah's going, okay? So like, and honestly, like we can't, I mean, anyway, he, he was cooped up for a while. But like, Noah was a sinner who needed God's grace. And what we see all throughout the Bible, and this is a really important category, you're you're gonna hear me harp on this over the years here at Christ the King. All throughout the Bible, grace always precedes obedience. Grace always precedes obedience. God never tells people, obey first, then you get the grace. Because that's not grace. So think about it, like before, I'll give you one example. Before God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, all this obedient stuff he wants them to do, what does he do? He rescues them out of Egypt. He saves them. He gives them grace. When Jesus uh, has a, a woman who's been caught in adultery brought before him, what does Jesus do? He first off looks around and says, anyone who is without sin cast the first stone. Everyone leaves except for Jesus because he's without sin. He actually could cast the stone. But instead, he says, see, there is no one here to condemn you, neither do I condemn you, grace. And then he says, now go and sin no more, obedience. It's always the pattern, grace, obedience. So Noah is given mercy and grace from God. And then he's called into obedience, to participating in God's work. And it's kind of a weird job. Build a ginormous boat in this field. Build it. And Noah, by faith, acts upon God's mercy. And so, listen, that is what our, that's what our faith looks like. Hebrews 11 says this, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, by faith, took heed and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
And so what this means is when we begin believing in God's mercy, it actually changes us. Our, we, we do begin to obey him, not in order to get his favor, but because he's given it to us. We, we live in light of his favor. And what that means is that sometimes people are gonna look at you living out the Christian faith. If you're a Christian or if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, you should be warned. People are going to look at you following Jesus and think it looks ridiculous, as ridiculous as building a massive boat in the middle of the ancient Near East when there hasn't been a flood for a long time. It looks that ridiculous sometimes, following Jesus. Following Jesus with the way that you treat your money, following Jesus with the way that you treat your time, following Jesus with the way that you treat your sexuality, following Jesus with the way that you treat your Sabbath rest. People are gonna think it's preposterous the way that you follow Jesus, if you do that. It's going to look like building an ark in the middle of a field. But the reality is you and I, we will build on what we believe in. We will build on what we believe in. Jesus talks about this later when he talks about the wise man and the foolish man. He says, there's, it's like a wise, there's a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when the floodwaters come and the wind and the rain beat against the house, the house stands because it's built on the rock. It's built on Christ. He's talking about himself. We build, our faith is revealed by what we are building our lives on. He says, the foolish man builds his house on sand. And when the floodwaters come, the floodwaters take that house down back into chaos. And the truth for all of us is that the waters of death are coming for us. They, they, they are. The waters of death are coming for each and every one of us. But throughout the Bible, we see that God is inviting us to build on him, to find our refuge in him as we pass through the waters. All throughout the Bible, God is, he is saving people as they pass through the waters. He's saving Noah on the ark. He's saving Israel crossing through the Red Sea into their salvation as like the waters of death are around them. God is with Jonah as he rescues him from drowning by sending a great fish to swallow him and to keep him and to preserve him and to restore him. God is with his disciples. Jesus, when he's calming the storm, the storm waters that are about to overwhelm his disciples, the waters of death that are coming into the boat and Jesus with a word calms it. And all throughout the scriptures, God is welcoming us to go with him through the waters to get on the ark. Did you see who closed the ark door? I love that little, that, that little line. Chapter seven, verse 16, the Lord shut them in. They get on the boat, the animals are going crazy, everyone's in, and they got this big door and God, God's the one who's gonna save them. He shuts the door for them. God is the one who does our saving. He does it and he welcomes us to build our life upon him. He does this in our baptism. In Romans, Paul describes the way that we are in Christ and the waters of baptism. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. We're baptized into Jesus's death. 
In order that, Paul says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In a sense, the story of the flood, is, it's a baptism story. It's a baptism story where Noah is going into the ark and everything outside dies. And there is a new creation that is made. And that is what the Christian life looks like. We are welcomed into the life of Jesus. And out of that, he makes us new. He welcomes us to walk with him in newness of life. And the way that he does it is by keeping his promise. In, in, in Genesis 3.15, God makes this promise to Eve. And he says, there's going to be, there's, he says there's gonna be the seed of the serpent and the serpent is going to, he's gonna come after you. He's gonna come after, he's gonna come after those who come after you. But then he also says there's going to be the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. You know what's really interesting about that even just like, some of the um, commentators I've been reading, I, I never thought about this. It was like, you kind of would have thought that he would have said the seed of Adam. The seed of Adam is gonna come and crush the head of the serpent. But it's the seed of Eve. And even in doing that, like the door is kind of cracked open for a virgin birth. That it's actually, it, it's going to be the seed of the woman. And, and from her, there will come another man who, who will be a, a new creation. He will be fully God, fully man conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And he will come and be the new Adam that we need. And God is preserving that. He's preserving that on this ark. He's preserving that rescue story and redemption story that it seems so small with Noah, but it's cosmic. It's for the whole world. Because God is, God is not giving up on these rebels who keep turning from him. He enters into it. When, when the father was, being, was handcuffed and, and being taken out of um, the courtroom, in the story I was telling you earlier, the, the last moment right before he leaves, one of the, one of the uh, lawyers in the courtroom stands up and, and she says, y'all, we cannot behave like this. She's saying that to the rest of the crowd to urge them to not. She says, we cannot behave like this. And as the father's walking out, he calls over his shoulder. You haven't lived through it, lady. You don't know what it's like. You haven't lived through it. And you know what is so interesting and unique about the Christian God? He has lived through it. There is no other God like that who was so deeply moved in his heart by the wrong of the world that he actually came into our world he actually took the curse upon himself and took it to the cross so that we could be shielded from his wrath so that he could be just and merciful. In, in 2012, on a Friday afternoon in Henryville, Indiana, a woman named Stephanie Decker heard the sirens going off in her neighborhood and that meant one thing, a tornado was coming to their house and to their neighborhood. She gathered her two children, her young son and daughter, into the basement, threw a blanket over them, and then threw her body over them as she heard the storm rampage its way through their neighborhood and toppling her house down, knocking beams and furniture into her body, 
breaking her ribs, almost severing both of her legs. When they found her in the wreckage, they discovered Stephanie who was a mess and they discovered two children who didn't have a scratch on them. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He has covered us from the wrath that we deserved because he's gracious and we didn't earn it. It's the good news of Jesus. So what does that mean? So what? I'll be quick on this, but so what? I think it means that our heart is drawn towards what God cares about here. It's, it's what Micah 6, 8 says. He has shown you, man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. So God cares about us doing justice. God cares in Genesis 6 about the marginalized and the vulnerable being taken advantage of. And he, he actually commands his people that he has rescued when we were marginal, marginalized and vulnerable to the evil one. He has saved us and so he welcomes us into caring for the poor, the orphan, the sick, the sojourner. He cares deeply about that and about his people participating in his justice. He also calls us to love mercy, to do justice and to love mercy. To see that this is our, that our story is like the story of Noah when we deserved God's wrath to come torrenting down upon us that we were saved in Christ. And so because of that, we love to tell the story of God's mercy in our life. Do you know what that will do? That'll keep us from being really fake with each other because you can't talk about God's mercy unless you talk about your sin. And our friends, who you, maybe your friend who you want to know Jesus, they probably need to hear about your sin if you want them to know Jesus. They probably need to hear about why you need Jesus, not why they need Jesus. They probably need to hear about your need for grace and the mercy that you found in Christ. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. When we see what God has given us, it humbles us. It humbles us because of his lavish grace to us in Christ. So let's finish worshiping him now. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your loving kindness to us through the person and work of Jesus. And we pray um, that you would help us to participate in your work of doing justice and loving mercy, all for your glory. And we ask this humbly in his name, amen.